Hello, I'm Hugh Anzani and welcome to Brandenburg One. Thank you for joining me for more Baroque Now. As always in Baroque Now, I'm joined by one of the inspiring musicians and artists bringing Baroque music to life with the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by an old friend of mine and a brilliant Baroque violinist, Matthew Greco, to talk about the Hague, rhetoric, and lessons we can all learn from one of his favourite Baroque composers, Arcangelo Corelli. Hello, Matt. Hi, Hugh. Thanks for having me. And uh, having you with me today reminds me of many things. Obviously, it's it's great to catch up with an old friend. Now, for those of you at home that uh, don't know, Matt and I actually were at uni together at the Sydney Conservatorium of Music. <laughs> and uh, it's one of these special places where you do get to make a lot of friends and, and it really is a pleasure to talk everything uh, violin, Baroque violin now with you. Um, obviously, you weren't studying Baroque violin at the time. Uh, no, <laughs> it, was, um, it was not an option, unfortunately. When I was at the con, um, although in fairness, though, you know, early music and, and historical performance was something that was at the conservatorium. Mm. It's just that you couldn't study it as a major. Yeah. So I did a lot of Baroque things on the side. It was my little side hobby uh, whilst I was studying the, the modern classical violin. Um, and that's actually when I became involved with, with Brandenburg and, and Paul and everyone here. So that was a, quite a pivotal time for me because it was mm. a, a bit of a baptism by fire. <laughs> I had to sort of just get into the, the swing of it quite quickly. Yes. But, um, there was, you know, an early music ensemble at the Con directed by Neil Perez Costa and, um, and Danny Eden. And that was really fun. And I, I learned a lot from that mm. um, whilst at the same time doing, you know, ABO stuff. Yeah. And I remember uh, Paul actually coming to a concert for the um, C- Sydney Conservatorium Chamber Choir. And I was singing in that concert and, oh, and he yes. pilfered a few of the, the choristers <laughs> from the, the, the choir that year, yeah. which, was, which was also how I started at, at uni like you, um, singing and, and uh, performing more regularly with the Brandenburg. Mm. Now, there are several places one can study Baroque music, obviously, especially more and more nowadays, um, and or historically, what we call historically informed performance. Maybe you could tell us about some of these places. You've mentioned a few things like a, a Baroque uh, or early music ensemble that mm. was uh, run by Neil Paris Costa and Daniel Yeadon. Yeah. Um, maybe you could tell us about some of the places that someone could go if they were interested to study mm. Baroque music or historically informed performance. Sure, sure. My pleasure. Look, um, you know, studying historical performance or, or early music as we like to call it is um so much easier now but you know back in the days when the hip movement was was starting up as a bit of a new thing there were limited places you could go and one of those places was holland or as it's now called the netherlands and the hague specifically which is a funny little um diplomatic city in holland and it has a bit of a history, especially with many of the members, um, current and former, of the Brandenburg Orchestra. A lot of our musicians have studied in The Hague. And I guess it being a centre for early music um, or this historical performance style is probably because of the people who started the movement there. So there were various individuals like Gustav Leonhardt, who was probably one of the world's most famous harpsichord players. And, and Paul, of course, um, knew him and, and had took lessons with him and when he was in, um, when he was in Holland. 
And mm. it's people like him that set up this school of historical performance in Holland. And so so yeah. is it really something to do with the people rather than the place? What is it about the, yeah. the Hague that attracted these people in the mm. first place? Mm. Yeah, that's a really good question. I, When I think about it, yes, I think largely it's the people uh, because these pioneers, if you will, set up a tradition of music making um, that then became a part of the conservatoriums in Holland. Uh, you know, the, the Hague and Holland has this history because of people like Gustav Leinhardt and his um, and his wife, Marie, and also other very famous um, string players like um, Sigisvald Koechen, who is actually um, Belgian, but, but taught in The Hague, and he was one of the very early first, you know, Brock violinists from the 70s and 80s. And in fact, his his whole family, his brothers, yes. uh, you know, are yes, <laughs> very prominent in the early music scene. <laughs> That's correct. And they all taught uh, at The Hague, mm. all of them. And, you know, so so these uh, three brothers, um, as well as Gustav Leonhardt, and then various other people, like I could talk endlessly about all the different people, I, I guess they set up a tradition of music making in mm. Holland that drew students there also to study to, to study this art form and and I guess that's why the Hague became a center for early music and, and that's one of the reasons I went to study there because I wanted to study in a place that had a big department you know like a lot of different people that I could interact with mm. as I said you know it's, it's not the only place you can study um, baroque music you can go to Basel in Switzerland, you can go to Italy, um, you know, Milano has a great department, you can study in Paris, there are lots of different places you can study now, London, but The Hague is still, to the best of my knowledge, the largest early music department we have. Yeah. And that, that's what really attracted me there. I, I wanted to not only study from particular teachers, and we might get into that later, but I wanted to meet lots of different people um, colleagues, mm. friends to, to play chamber music with and to learn from as well. And indeed, one of the colleagues you met uh, over in The Hague, um, Raphael Font, uh-huh. was talking about <laughs> uh, the Royal Conservatoire as being uh, a sort of mecca. And, and it, the way you're talking about it so effusively and the people there, uh, that's exactly what I'm you know picturing. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it is this, this very important cultural centre now. Perhaps you could take us through some of the key lessons you remember learning while there. Were there particular topics or particular questions that you remember asking yourself and and working on? Yeah. um, Everyone who went there had a slightly different journey, as as is always the case with with us musicians. But um, for me... I had already had a fair bit of experience playing Baroque music in Australia, you know, with with groups like like Brandenburg and others. Um, so when I arrived in The Hague, what the journey was like for me was, was um, I guess it was defined by crystallising or, or refining um, the way I express Baroque music on my instrument. Of course, you know, when you go, when you go to a university and you, you study things formally, there are ver- various technical things that you have to iron out. Um, you know, physicalities of, of learning how to play the instrument really well. Uh, so that was a priority of mine too, you know, getting on top of the technical requirements of, of playing the Brock violin. Mm. But, but more, more than anything for me, it was style, 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 learning the differences between different styles of Baroque music and, and how that informs your technique. Um, understanding better concepts, um, you know, like basso continuo, um, you know, learning 
you know, the, the function of how pieces are put together, the structure of pieces. And, you know, I, I think more than anything, the biggest thing that I had to focus on when I was there was this, this whole idea about playing rhetorically. And that's something we might, we might get a chance to talk a little bit about more today. But mm. when I was studying there, I have <laughs> quite a few funny memories of being in lessons, not just with violin teachers, but, but other teachers too, you know, singing teachers or uh, flute teachers who would often say things to me like, could you play more rhetorically? And I remember at the time that was something I really had to think about. And I was like, well, goodness, what, what do they mean? What are you talking about? Playing more rhetorically? Okay, right. Well, okay, I speak more than music. You know, I, I, it, was, it was a new idea for me. It was something mm. I really had to come to terms with. And, and more than anything, going to a place like The Hague teaches you that whilst you have all these teachers, you are your teacher. And that, that was a big lesson for me is it's that you have to go out yourself and find out all this information about how to make Baroque music work. Mm. It's not something that will ever be really spoon-fed to you. It's you are your teacher. So mm. I, I had to learn that when I was there. And I think that's one of the great stories um, underpinning academia, full stop. Definitely. You know, it really is about um, learning how to learn. Mm. And, uh, and I, I suppose apart from some conversational Dutch then, was there anything you learned <laughs> overseas that you don't think you could have learned here in Australia? Yes, definitely. Um, it needs to be said, though, that I, I mean, I think, I think that there is definitely a mentality of going to Europe um, to learn, you know, skills um, as a musician that you may or may not be able to find uh, locally. Um, but I'm, I'm in, I'm ambivalent about this. I'm in two minds because I do think staying in the country you know, where you where you grew up and where you were born um, is, is perfectly fine for learning as well because, as I was just saying, being your own teacher means that you can do it anywhere. So, and that's the beauty, I think, in early music is because we have access to all these sources and these, this historical information. You don't have to be anywhere particular to learn. That being said, though, yes, I think you are correct. There is There are things I learnt in The Hague specifically and in Holland that I don't think I would have learnt unless I'd gone there specifically. Mm. The first and foremost thing for me was the interaction I had with my colleagues. So the people I studied with, um, you know, one one thing that's really beautiful about The Hague is it's it, it's geographically and, and socially very, very international. It's a student town. The mix of students you get there, and, and not just students, the mix of professionals is is so wide. There are people from all over the globe. You know, I had, I made contacts with people from Canada, America, Korea, Japan, China, you know, and of course, Europe itself, Italy, France, Germany, all these places. This, this melting pot that was The Hague mm. meant I got such a wide view of different approaches to music and different approaches to early music. Uh, and, you know, the beauty of that is you get to, you get to benefit from all these different ideas. Um, so that's one, one element, just the, the sheer number of different nationalities. The second thing, though, is that being one of the largest departments in the world, the staff that are there um, are so experienced I, I got to have lessons with Bartold Kochen, who was the brother of the violinist, Sigisvald Kochen. Mm. So Bartold is a very, very famous Baroque flute player, traverso player. And I had 
a lot of lessons with him with colleagues who played the flute, like Michaela Oberg, who plays in Brandenburg. And he was such a fierce teacher. He used to say the most awful things to me in jest, of course. We always laughed about it. But he would say, oh, you sound like Chrysler, who, of course, was a very <laughs> famous romantic violinist, which is a <laughs> sort of offensive thing you could say to a Baroque violinist, of course. And he was always trying to, to get us to think about how we could recreate this music from the past in an authentic fashion. Mm. Uh, always challenging ourselves to teach ourselves better, to mm. know more about style. Uh, and I learned so much from him. Yeah. Uh, very specific things I learned from him, like um, if you're playing a phrase of music and you have you know, a couple of different bars of music, which bar is the most important? What do you bring out more than something else? Something as simple as accenting a, uh, a, a stray beat of music over another beat in the same bar um, is, is, can make or break a whole phrase of music. And, and he, was, he worked with us in that, in that detail. Mm. And if you accented the wrong beat or if you played a piece of music that didn't sound the same as the singer, you were <laughs> slapped yes. on the wrist by him. <laughs> Won't be the person sounding like Chrysler. And thank you for, yes. this, for, the, for the context there. Um, now, is there a particular piece of music that reminds you of your time in The Hague? Is there something that, um, that springs to mind? Yeah, look, uh, so many pieces. Um, there's one in particular piece that every time I hear it has a, a sort of a sentimental value for me. And that's because I recorded this piece of music with um, my then ensemble, you know, my mates. Um, I formed this great little group um, with a Brazilian harpsichord player, a Korean Baroque violinist and a Japanese-Australian cellist who you may have seen before as part of the Brandenburg family, Anton Barber. And so Anton, of course, is from Perth and I met him in The Hague and we decided to form this group with um, my Korean friend and my Brazilian friend and myself. So it's two violins, cello and harpsichord and we recorded this piece. It's an overture by Jean-Marie Leclerc, who's one of my favourite composers, um, beautiful French Baroque, late French Baroque violinist. And he recorded, uh, we recorded rather, um, an overture and Allegro from his Opus 13 uh, set of trios. And it's this amazing, very uplifting piece in A major and it's got this sort of really brilliant, noble French character. And every time I hear it, I think of um, my dear friends and this wonderful time in The Hague when we recorded this track. And uh, this, is, this is us actually, actually playing it. <laughs>
Now, I'll leave that going in the background yeah. just for a while. It's such stunning music. Oh, I love it. I Fabulous love playing, music. I must say. Oh, why, thank you. <laughs> now, when you when you hear this uh, today, mm. what sort of things does it evoke in your mind? What, what does that yeah. make you think of? Oh, it makes me think of Paris and also Versailles. You know, there's, there's something so regal and, mm. and upright and... and um, Having lived in Paris and, and France yourself, Hugh, I, I, I know that you appreciate this style of music, most likely. And um, there's something in my heart for, for French Baroque music. Um, I don't know, it just speaks to me. I love the... It's particularly music in this style. This is an overture. Mm. So it's, a, it's by nature a very uh, commanding and upright and, and noble um, uh, you know, opening to a suite or an opera. And I love this style of French music. Mm. It's, it's full of energy, and yet yeah, it, it, it takes me straight to straight to France. Um, you know, I think of the court of, of Louis XIV, and um, and also Louis the Fifteenth and Sixteenth. You know, it's this style of music that I I just love it. Mm. It's fantastic. And in, indeed, I was the one of the first other pieces of music that popped into my mind mm. was the overture <laughs> from Cadmus et Hermione, mm-hmm. um, actually, which is being performed as part of the Airs and Graces uh, program. Mm-hmm. And uh, Lully and that whole court, and of course Leclerc, um, mm-hmm. was prevalent uh, in, in the court music of Louis XIV. Uh, Louis um, it just, it has that sound to it that uh, it announces things, uh, the arrival of the king mm-hmm. in such a way or, mm-hmm. or whatever the, the subject may be. Mm. Um, and it's, it's hard to go past. It's fantastic. I, I adore it. I mean, it's it's a very special type of music making, French Baroque music. It's, I, I think more than any other style of Baroque music, it's a little bit shrouded in mystery. It's a very particular, um, there are a few techniques that are, I think, you know, quite idiomatic to this um, style and, and perhaps a little less played when you compare it to our Handel's and Vivaldi, you know, concertos and things that we're, you know, I guess used to hearing. French music, I think, is something that that perhaps needs to be championed, I think, a little bit more these days. Now, like many musicians, Matt, you Mm. also teach. And uh, talking about these things, oh, we could learn from this or or that in terms of French style, Mm. you've made me think about about this question. Mm. Uh, First of all, how many students do you have at the moment? Oh, gosh, that's a dreadful question. I have to count them all up. Um, Well... Sorry to put you on the spot. (laughs) I think think last time I checked, it's, it's 17. At the moment. And out of those 17, how many are actually studying Baroque violin? Um, Two. So not a lot, unfortunately. But um, I have two more or less um, full-time Baroque violin students. One is um, a lovely student that I teach at the Sydney Conservatorium of Music. So um, I'm very thrilled and and, um, grateful to be able to to teach Baroque violin as a main subject at at the con. Uh, and I also have another student through the Brandenburg Orchestra, um, a wonderful um, new um, violinist, uh, James Armstrong. Mm. Now, in terms of those two students, do you approach teaching, and this was the question that popped into my mind, do you approach teaching the violin um, in the same way for your modern violin students as for the Baroque violin students? To a certain degree, yes. Uh, I think one one problem I had when I went to The Hague is that and I think this is indicative of the generation um, before me and the way that they learnt, is that there wasn't a lot of explanation. There wasn't a lot of technical detail about how to play the Baroque violin. 
the mechanics of it, let's say. So you were more or less left to your own devices to, to a certain degree as to working out how to achieve the effects that you need to to make a piece sound Baroque. So my approach to teaching Baroque violin is to draw from my experience as a modern violinist and my time at the Conservatorium of Music with the most wonderful teacher, Janet Davies, who taught me a lot about, about technical things and, and musical things as well. But um, I guess I learned from her a real method for knowing how the mechanics of a violin actually works. And so what I try to do with Baroque violin is draw from my modern experience and knowledge of um, use, as she used to call used to call it, how you use your body to to play the violin. Um, with my knowledge, my stylistic knowledge of how baroque music needs to sound, and marrying the two together, so that uh, when I teach baroque violin, there's a system, there are exercises to do, there are things that you can practice to to take out a little bit of the guesswork. That was mm. that was a problem I had. And, and a lot of my colleagues, um, we, we often traded stories with that, was that we, we struggled over working out how to achieve the stylistic results technically. So I guess my, my approach to teaching Brock Violin is, is marrying those two things together. Uh, you know, there was a very famous, a very, very famous modern violin teacher called Dorothy DeLay. She was a huge, um, you know, pedagogue from, from America who taught many, many famous modern violinists. And I think her, one of her sayings was, I don't believe in mysteries when it comes to violin. There are no mysteries. There's always a way to do something, to achieve something. And that mm. I've always tried to remember that. I, I love the, the sentiment of that. And I think what's interesting about early music and Baroque violin and, and what we do in the Brandenburg is that it can sometimes be shrouded in a little bit of mystery. Particularly, you know, when you come from a modern trained, classically trained background, people come to you and say, oh, what's this all about? How do you, how do, you do that? What do you, why are you doing these strange things on Brock Violin? But I think there are reasons from that. And I always like to use Mr. Lay's uh, sentiment here. So yeah, that's mm. my that's my theory. <laughs> well, well, just like we were talking about before, it it comes down to uh, your research into a particular topic. If you mm. go far enough down the rabbit hole, yes, you'll have more and more questions, un you know, uh, undoubtedly. But also, you're going to basically leave less and less space for uh, that shroud of doubt that you're that you're referring to. Mm. Mm. Uh, in terms of uh, not just uh, teachers now, uh, people that you've worked with or, or learned from actively. Are there actually some composers that you feel like every time you play you, their music, you're actively learning too? Oh, for sure. Um, well, I mean, you know, first and foremost, I think one of the greatest sort of didactic tools for a Brock violinist is solo Bach. Mm. It pushes you to the absolute limits of your um, technical abilities. It's it's just can be so fiendishly difficult. Uh, but... In terms of real pedagogy and, and learning, so in my teaching and the teaching of myself, Corelli, Arcangelo Corelli, is the cornerstone, the absolute cornerstone of, of learning to play the Brock violin. It's something that I had to, his um, violin sonatas, I had to learn all of them when I was in The Hague, mm. and I teach them all to my students. In so far as that his... his um, Opus 5 set of violin sonatas continued to be published right up and during the time of Beethoven. Wow. So all the way through the classical period, 
all the way through to Beethoven and beyond, his Opus 5 Sonatas for Violin were used as an example of good taste, of how to ornament, how to add in extra notes, how to improvise on the violin, but also just as a, a great didactic tool. So when I, if I had to pick one thing, it would be Corelli's Opus 5 Violin Sonatas, definitely. And just before I uh, give everyone a, a brief uh, excerpt mm. from that collection, maybe tell us uh, roughly how many sonatas did, did was that in total that you had to learn? Oh, sure. Well, there are 12 sonatas in that book. Um, or, or Opus, I should say. He's Opus 5. Uh, and the Opus 5 is split into two books, book one and book two. The first part um, consists of six sonatas mm -hmm. that are slightly more difficult. <laughs> I had to learn all of those, as did many of my colleagues. Uh, and, I, and I wanted to learn them, you mm. know, because they're, they're beautiful. They're, they're stunning. Uh, and the other, the other sonatas in the second part of the book are slightly easier um, and in a slightly different style. The, 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 first, um, the first six sonatas, um, they all have fugues in them. And fugues, of course, are things that we hear a lot on keyboard instruments. But as violinists, we also play fugues. And it's quite demanding because you have to play lots of double stops, many notes at the same time, many chords. And um, it's virtuosic and it's great, it's great fun. Yeah. I just love it. And there are these fugues in the, in the first part of the book that are uh, great tools for learning how to, to get around your instrument. Uh, but more than that, I think, more importantly, the first slow movement of every sonata in the first half of the book, has written examples of the ornamentation that Corelli would have used or we think would have used. Mm. And this is a huge teaching tool because it teaches us, it, it gives us a living example of how he would have ornamented a slow movement and they're beautiful. Yeah. So without making anyone wait any yes. longer, I'll just uh, maybe ask you to tell us who is the fantastic violinist that we're going to hear in this recording of Arcangelo Corelli's Sonata Number no. 6 in A major, the first movement from that work, the Grave. So this is a recording made by my Baroque violin teacher. And his name was Enrico Gatti, is Enrico Gatti. And we used to lovingly call him Henry Katz because that's the literal translation in Italian. And he's a wonderful teacher. And he recorded this um, not so long ago. And he's an expert of playing Corelli. <laughs>
so beautiful, isn't it? It is. Now, that was recorded with the Outer music uh, label, a French music label, Outer mm. music. Okay. Um, and maybe you could point us, uh, as we uh, keep hearing a little bit of it in the background, to some of those points where we're hearing the ornamentation you mm. were referring to. Yeah, it's hard to, to describe, but you can hear he plays a long note and then he adds in a trill. You just heard one then. Or a small passage of fast notes that are very swiftly played that lead into a next note. There's one coming up now, I think. Beautiful little trill. There's a beautiful example of an ornament that, that you might use as a sample for playing in this style. Mm. This sort of um, early to mid Italian realm of Baroque violin playing. Um, and that's why these particular pieces are such a great tool for teaching mm. because these little flourishes um, are so well put together and so well designed that they serve as such a great example for you to use uh, for, for composing your own ornamentation. That particular last ornament is one of my favourite um, ornaments. And, you know, traditionally in this style of music, when you get to a cadential point or a cadence, um, what one of my favourite composers, Georg Muffat, calls a, 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 a major cadence or a big cadence, that's the, that's the point in the music where you would traditionally bring out all your ornaments. So you show, you show the audience what you can do. And... It's a, it's a theory that actually I'm, I'm sort of have been thinking a lot about lately, mm. probably because of my teaching, because that's what teaching does. You know, it forces you to, to think about why we do what we do. And the theory is that there's not, there's not so much randomness in ornamentation as we might think. It's not a free-for-all. The job of the ornamentation, the extra notes, the embellishments that we add to a slow movement, the function of those ornaments is to bring out the structure um, the structure of the piece. Mm. So, so the ornaments are there to heighten the way the piece has been put together. Yeah. And a good example of that is seeing the or some of the ornaments that you just heard. Uh, for example, the very florid ornament that, that my teacher used right at the end of the piece there to highlight the fact that the piece is about to finish. Mm. This is a great example of the function of ornamentation, what yes. ornamentation does to make us feel the affect of a piece more intensely. That's mm. the job of, of these beautiful ornaments. And I, I think that's why I love them so much and love teaching them to my students. And I think this segues beautifully into another topic that you and I were discussing um, off, off air earlier today, mm. rhetoric, and uh, talking about how to structure phrases. Now, uh, in order to talk about that properly, maybe you could uh, just tell us um, what does the word rhetoric mean in a musical context? A lot of musicians talk about rhetoric, and what are they referring to when they talk about that word? Mm. It's a it's a huge topic. It's a bit of a can of worms. Um, but simply put, the idea of playing rhetorically and rhetoric in music is to declaim or to be declamatory, declamation, the imitation of declamation. And declamation, of course, is the art of giving a speech. And it comes from this very 
classical um, Grecian, um, you know, art form of of preparing a soliloquy and, and declaiming your speech to an audience. This, of course, is is something that's outlined in classical texts by by Cicero and and Romans and Greeks alike, Aristotle and others. Mm. Um, it's still something I'm learning about to this very to this very moment. But what Baroque composers did is they modelled, especially in the early Baroque period, is they they modelled this declamatory um, style of, of, of speaking. They modelled their music on this style. So the, the whole idea of playing musical notes is that they should resemble rhetorical gestures, um, figures of speech and, and speech giving. So that's that's the in a nutshell the the what stands at the core of playing rhetorically is that mm. is that instrumentalists we have to imitate not only the human voice but the language itself. Mm. That's and, the idea. And are there any fundamental differences then between the way that rhetoric is used in language and mm. in music, or is it basically a musical approach to the same the same idea? Look, my, the research I've I've looked into um, to date has shown that there are more similarities than not, particularly with regards to structure. So if you zoom out and you look at the structure of a sonata of music, it very closely resembles the terms that were given to the structure of a speech. Mm. You know, the, the introduction, the, um, you know, the main points, the, the discussion or the argument of, the, of your points in the speech and then reaching a conclusion. These, these kind of, this kind of idea that your, your speech needs to make sense served as a very model for the composition of a of a piece of music mm. and, and this 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 function changed a lot over the whole Baroque period it's it's never good to say that it applies to everything of course but to zoom in a little bit it it applies very specifically to early italian music and particularly german early german Baroque music in this style we like to call the stilus fantasticus so this idea of modeling your piece of music on a speech is almost exactly the same if you zoom in a little bit, we start to look at the actual figures of speech themselves. So um, inflections of the voice, very specific inflections that you use to elicit emotional responses in the audience. This is a very this is a premise that was used in um, in declaiming that is literally the same in music. Mm. And you know, the German Particularly the German composers, being German, of course, they they went to Italy, came back, and wrote everything down in a manual, which is fantastic because we have something to read that tells us what they did. So thank you, thank you to the Germans. But they, particularly these early German composers, to name one very famous one, uh, Dietrich Buxtehude, mm. which of course we may hear the music of in our upcoming Noel Noel series. Uh, this particular composer and a lot of his colleagues. They codified these gestures, these these figures of speech, these rhetorical devices, and they wrote them down and they gave them Latin names and they put them into books called lexicons. And a lexicon, of course, is a is kind of like a dictionary of a language, mm. you know. And these these little gestures were were codified. So we actually have um, examples and definitions. Just just to name one, just to give you an idea, there's one called an accentus, um, a preceding or succeeding upper or lower note 
um, usually added by the the performer to to draw your attention to something, mm. or you know there are, there are there are thousands of of names they give to these gestures. It might be something as simple as a a rising scale of notes, a very fast rising scale of notes um, that symbolizes the ascension of 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 Jesus Christ into heaven. Mm. You know these these there are symbolic things, and then there are rhetorical gestures that go with those symbolical things as well. Right. To, so, to yeah. Meaning on top of meaning, layers. Yes, many, and, many layers. And yeah. in, a, in a way, that's what you were talking about with the ornamentation, that beautiful recording of your teacher Enrico uh, Gatti. And mm. essentially, when we hear that ornamentation serving the cadential purpose of mm. the line, uh, it, it makes a lot more sense than if it were just some sort of showboating, um, you know, coming at the end of the, the, the piece. Which, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Look, I mean, I... I I don't. I don't want it to sound too esoteric. It is ornamentation can be wild. <laughs> I mean, you know, there was a very famous quote of the the wonderful and highly entertaining music historian Charles Burney, um, who very famously. I, I don't have the exact quote in my brain, but it, it's along the lines of when asked what Corelli sounded like, what what was his sound like on the violin? Was it was it a beautiful tone? He responded, well, I can't actually really tell you that because he puts in so many extra fast twiddles and embellishments that you never actually get to hear him play one single plain long note. So that that is always a very funny historical example of how, you know, they went to town with ornamentation. Yeah. Um, you know, there are there are late Italian Baroque composers, one of my favourites, Giuseppe Tartini, whose examples of ornamenting Corelli are so florid that they are just insane. You can barely fit in all the notes. Yes. So I don't want to lead you all astray by thinking that it's a, it's, it can be a very um, extremely expressive and wild thing mm. to do. But it is still, yes, you're correct, it is still based around the structure of a piece of music. And I think a lot of Australian audiences would be familiar with the idea of one-upmanship. <laughs> it's, yes. it's something that, that is certainly musicians are, uh, musicians are not immune to. Um, but how do you go about applying these ideas now in mm. your playing? Mm. You've obviously studied with some very fine musicians. We've even heard, uh, heard that. Um, how do you apply these ideas in mm. your playing? That's a great question. It starts with the repertoire. So um, in my ensemble, the Muffat Collective, just to, to use our little workshop, um, because that's what we do in my group, we, we like to workshop different styles of music. And when we approach ornamentation and how we want to embellish a piece of music, we have to look at when and where it was composed and in what style. So for example, if we play a Corelli trio sonata, which is in the style of the piece you heard my teacher play, we look to the ornaments composed by Corelli himself. What better place to look at? And also contemporaries of that composer. So you start with the composer and then you work with his or her contemporaries and you think and you look, okay, what are there any examples, historical examples of the ornamentation used by his students or his contemporaries? And can we literally copy and paste those or or assimilate them so that they become part of our language so that when I play this trio sonata by Corelli, I have in my little bag of tricks mm. um, a series of ornaments that I can pull out at will. 
and and hopefully one up Raphael, and then he'll <laughs> and then he'll one up me, and we'll have a little battle, and it's it's heaps of fun because we we both try and inform ourselves with this. Uh, exactly, and when I see you two both playing, as I have previously, when I've mm. watched you performing um, with the Moffat Collection, but also with the Brandenburg, mm. um, when I see you two on stage, uh, you you are communicating. It's not just a, a matter of one upmanship. Oh, no. It's it's a it's a form of communication <clears throat> that um, it, it's fantastic to watch. Very exciting. Oh, thanks. Look, it's 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 possibly the most single enjoyable element of playing live music. That interaction we have with each other is priceless. And unfortunately, it's not something you can get from a CD. <laughs> no, that's correct. <laughs> now, yeah. is there, however, a recording perhaps that mm. um, we could hear some of these ideas um, yes. laid out in a musical sense? Yes, definitely. Rhetoric Look, and yeah, there are so many. Rhetoric is such a is such a huge topic. Uh, and there are so many different styles uh, that you can pick from. What I've selected is a really um, exuberant example of a violinist playing in what I would consider to be an extremely rhetorical fashion. So, excuse me, if you if you imagine that every single um, note that is about to be played by this um, this violinist is a word in a sentence. And each sentence is part of a paragraph of a speech in a little soliloquy given by the violinist to the audience. That's, that is at the very core of what it means to play Baroque music. Uh, and as an instrumentalist, not a singer, so we don't, we don't have text. It's a challenge um, and uh, an enjoyable process imitating this rhetorical style and imagining that Every word we play, every note we play is a word. So what I've picked is from a Locatelli Concerto Grosso. And it's a really interesting piece. It's called Il Pianto d'Ariana. And it's a programmatic work. So by that I mean the whole piece tells a story, a literal story, that comes from this classical Greek tale of Ariana. And after the opening introduction, which has this beautiful heart-throbbing motif in the bass, we arrive at this still section where the violinist has a kind of a recitative, which is usually um, an accompanied section where an opera singer um, or a singer would would declaim a passage of text. They wouldn't Mm. sing it like an opera aria. They would literally speak it to you. And this is really, really fantastic because the violin now has to do the job of an opera singer. It's mm. fantastic. And indeed, the concerto Köln here uh, mm. that we're going to hear, uh, obviously uh, on period instruments, yes. uh, they are going to sound much more like the singer would have, have sounded due to the the kit that they're actually using. The period instruments, and this is what I was talking about in depth with Raphael Font, uh, the way that the lower tension of the strings and the flatter bridge is, is all set up to help uh, produce a sound for the violin that would be more akin to spoken voice as opposed to sung voice. Uh, this is going to make playing this sort of recitative and having distinct sentences uh, just that much more, um, th- that much more lively and, 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 and obvious, actually. So without any further ado, here is the Concerto Köln uh, performing Locatelli's Concerto Grosso in E-flat major, opus 7, number 6, the first movement from Il Pianto d'Ariana, the Andate Allegro.
Now, I'll leave that heart throbbing going yeah, on in the background. It's wonderful, isn't it? So, maybe take us through what exactly are we listening for in this recitativo again? What are we going to hear, Matt? So, this is um, the, the literal translation of this, by the way. I'm just, just reminding myself, just Googling quickly, is the weeping of Ariadne. So, so as I understand it, this introduction is, is setting the scene for this classical tale. Uh, and once we've had this very upbeat, um, slightly, um, you know, exuberant section that we're hearing now, the violin is going to come in which, with what I consider to be the actual weeping, the sort of outcry of, of, of Ariana. So this is, uh, you know, it's quite literal. It's, it's, it needs no explanation. You'll, you'll see what I mean as soon as you hear it. <laughs> You can hear that absolute rhetorical style. So it's almost as if the, the violinist is asking you a question. You can put a question mark at the end of some of those phrases, just just from the way uh, he or she has has executed those those uh, those notes. And and indeed, even the bass line has changed from that throbbing to almost like a sobbing, uh, mm. and and we can hear that uh, that grammatical shift. I love it. It's great. I, I'm just looking at the text here, and this is the text um, that is used to to as the inspiration for this. And it, uh, it it starts with "Let me die," and who do you think can comfort me in this harsh fate, in this great suffering, to stormy rage? Uh, it finishes with. Ah, that you are deaf to my laments. O clouds, O storms, O winds, submerge me in those waves. So it's, it's, it's quite an intense text that, that serves as the, the theme for this concerto. And, you know, these questions that, that, that Ariadne is, is, Ariana, sorry, is, is asking, it's, it's almost as if they're being asked in this, this recitative, you know, what, you know, can you can you hear my harsh fate and suffering? Question mark. Mm. And I love what I love in Baroque music is the ability to be able to ask these questions, to to paint these figures with my bow and my gut strings and the Baroque violin itself. That that is, if you had to ask me, um, what's at the very core of Baroque music? It's that. It's 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 the ability to do that. It's being able to get audiences to feel something by speaking to them with music. Yes. Well, it's been fabulous chatting with you today, Matt. Obviously, uh, some of these musical examples have been absolutely thrilling. Um, and it's no surprise to me that you wanted to talk about uh, recitativo, given that your family as well has quite a history of, <laughs> of, of singing and, and vocal performance too. Yes, that's um, true. That's true. Your lovely brother I'm thinking of. Yes, David Greco, of course, my, my big brother, is a, <laughs> a singer. 
And uh, I, I guess I'm coloured by that, <laughs> no doubt. Hours of listening to lots of opera recordings as a teenager <laughs> and things that have, that have influenced me, for sure. Well, as I said, it's been fascinating uh, listening and uh, it's been wonderful talking with you, Matt. And uh, please, um, anytime you. when you're free. It's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. The Brandenburg is proud of our long-standing relationship with partner Macquarie Group. Our partnership with Macquarie Group is built on a shared vision of infinite possibilities and a commitment to the very highest standards of excellence. The Brandenburg is also proud to be supported by APA Group, our presenting partner for the Bach series. Through our partnership with APA Group, we have the opportunity to connect Baroque music to audiences and communities throughout Australia.